This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Happy Canada Day and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Dementia has many victims, not just those suffering from the mind-robbing disease. A new report shows caregivers pay a heavy cost in terms of their own health, with over half suffering from burnout. And what are you doing to celebrate Canada Day? Will you be one of 300,000 people planning to trek to Parliament Hill for the Big Bash? Those official birthday celebrations have evolved with changing times and governments. We'll get a little history lesson. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's called C. diff for short, and it's worried Zoomers for many years when it comes to hospital stays. The hospital-acquired disease attacks the colon, causing debilitating diarrhea and, in some cases, death. This week, we learned that rates of C. difficile are down 36% across the country, and researchers credit better hand-washing, intense cleaning of hospital facilities, and the use of antibiotics. The second man to walk on the moon is suing two of his children and a business manager, accusing them of exploitation of the elderly for suggesting he has dementia. 88-year-old former astronaut Buzz Aldrin filed the lawsuit in Florida this week after his children filed a petition claiming their father was suffering from memory loss and paranoia. They asked the court to name them his legal guardians, saying their dad is associating with new friends, who are trying to alienate him from his family and that he's been spending money at an alarming rate. Two long-lost sisters had no idea they share the same parents until a DNA test six months ago. 78-year-old Beverly Meyer flew into Seattle from California last week to meet her sister, 83-year-old Joyce Risher, in person for the first time. Risher's granddaughter discovered that two women had the same parents last summer after researching her family genealogy. Meyer was adopted after birth. Her seven siblings had no idea she was born. Just four weeks ago, model and actor Bridget Nielsen made headlines when she revealed that, at age 54, she was pregnant with her fifth child. Baby Frida was born on June 22nd, weighing 5 pounds 9 ounces. Her older brothers range in age from 23 to 34. Here's another woman defying the limits of age. 98-year-old V. Nanamal is a celebrated yoga instructor in India known for her ability to perform advanced moves. This video, one of many that have gone viral, shows her performing poses perfectly with total flexibility. She claims she's never had to go to a hospital in her almost 100 years and credits her healthy lifestyle to... What else? 
yoga. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Most people with dementia in Canada live at home and the role of unpaid caregiver falls on the spouse or children. And new data shows their health is suffering too. Almost twice as many caregivers of seniors with dementia experience distress compared with caregivers of seniors without the brain disease. Tracy Johnson is the lead author of the study by the Canadian Institute for Health Information and she dropped by our studios. Dementia is a progressively deteriorating disease as far as your cognitive function goes. And what that means is memory loss, balance changes, reasoning and judgment changes, changes to your behavior, communication and visual perception. And so when you think about those things getting worse, it means that you can't plan. It means that you can't dress yourself sometimes. You can't do some of the basic activities of daily living. So that means more and more supervision from a caregiver. So finding out that almost 50% of them express distress from the perspective of anger or depression or feeling unable to cope is not surprising if you think about the kinds of supervision they have to do. A lot of those people are women. A lot of caregivers are women. Caregivers are women and two-thirds of the folks living in Canada today, seniors in Canada with dementia, are also women. So it impacts women um, in two ways, both from a disease process and from a uh, watching someone deteriorate with that disease. Is the source of the stress that maybe they don't get spelled off enough, there isn't enough respite? You've, You've hit the nail on the head right there. So what we see is that caregivers who provide more than 20 hours of care a week are three times as likely to express distress. The other things that cause distress are decreased cognitive ability, so the more you have to supervise them. And if there is health instability on top of that, so if these folks with dementia have other medical problems that you have to help handle as well, that adds to the distress. Please give me a sense of how many hours people spend if they are caring for people with dementia versus people who don't have dementia. So what we can see in the data is that folks caring for seniors without dementia spend on average 17 hours a week caring for those folks, and caregivers of seniors with dementia spend 26 hours on average per week. So combine that with anything over 20, and you can see why there's increasing distress. Some of the behaviors, so it's the decrease in cognitive function, and 20% of the people at home exhibit severe cognitive dysfunction. And the other thing that adds to the stress is their dependence in those activities of daily living. And about 28% of people are quite dependent on their caregiver for those things. The signs and symptoms for dementia are really exhibited differently in every patient. So understanding whether you can leave them and whether respite care will help you really is very dependent on what that particular person looks like and what their family structure is like. Most older people with dementia, 61% live at home. Uh, I found that a bit surprising. I also found that surprising. I think we all did. And as soon as we saw the data, that was the story. What the report doesn't tell us is whether this is appropriate or not. What we know is that a third of seniors with dementia are in long-term care, two-thirds are at home. But what we can't tell from our data is that the appropriate mix or not. You found that people with dementia spend more time in emergency departments. Do you know why that is and how that impacts the caregiver? So if they can't provide a comprehensive kind of medical history, then it will take physicians longer to figure out why they're there and why they're running a fever or why they have pain. It may also be that if they want to discharge them from the emergency department and not admit them to the hospital, that arranging services takes some time as well. 
But you can imagine that once they go to, it also probably takes time in the emergency department because their routine is disrupted. They don't know where they are. They don't know why they're there. And, you know, the more distressed a person with dementia comes, that also has an impact on the caregiver because they either have to manage those challenging behaviors in that situation or they may have to manage the fallout of going to ED later. Do you see a fix for this? Is it more home care or what? I think what we strive to and what health systems across Canada strive to do is provide the right treatment at the right time in the right place. And as I said previously, that's very dependent on the family situation and what symptoms and signs that person is exhibiting with dementia. Some of the things we do know as we look at, so I think all health systems are grappling with what's the balance between something like long-term care, nursing home care, and care in the community. And certainly, given the aging baby boomers, we are focusing generally on more care in the community. And for this group of people, what we can see is you don't want them bopping back and forth to emergency department or hospital. Those aren't good places for them to be. So you want stable care in the community for them, a safe environment so they don't trip and fall and end up at the emergency department. You want programs that help them maintain any cognitive or physical function that they have right now because you can't prevent this or cure it, but you can slow it down a little bit and try and help the cognitive reserves. And those things are what can help the caregiver in the community and keep folks there if that's where they wish to be. Do you have advice for the caregivers who are understressed? You know, I think some decreasing of the stigma around dementia itself would be helpful. And so that's education for folks. The data does show us that if somebody is at home and becoming worse, they are less likely to be able to get out of the house. On average, people with dementia live about 10 years, and it is a long trajectory. In the report, we can see that with palliative care, we don't have a good perspective on when and how to use a palliative approach for other chronic diseases. Anything you'd like to leave us with? We hope this report sparks a conversation across the country about the needs of folks with dementia and helps us build our national strategy. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Tracy Johnson, a director with the Canadian Institute for Health Information. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, how and why we've celebrated Canada Day over the years. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Ottawa is expecting 300,000 people on Parliament Hill for the big Canada Day bash today. Obviously, 300,000 who weren't there for last year's fiasco, like I was. The big public ceremony is a way to cement our identity and reflect the agenda of the government of the day. University of Guelph history professor Matthew Hayday says... The first modern celebration dates to 1958, when John Diefenbaker was Prime Minister and the holiday was called Dominion Day. He gives us a little history lesson. I've studied the history of Canada Day basically since the federal government started trying to make a big deal of it, which takes you back to the 1950s. And there's really been cycles of back and forth with the extent to which they want to make all the focus on Ottawa versus trying to encourage more local celebrations. And there was a wave very similar to this right after the centennial. Like the folks had really been on Ottawa for the late 1960s up until 67. And then there's sort of this back and forth tension between wanting to have one big national celebration and wanting to really try to encourage people to do things that feel more grassroots and local. The security procedures have become 
far more dramatic than what used to be the case. I mean, going to Ottawa on Canada Day used to be Certainly for several years, you could do it as sort of a national pilgrimage. You knew they were going to put on a big show. It's a remarkable display of Canadian nationalism in the city during that day. In a way, you don't really get in a lot of other cities the same way, that people wear maple leaf flags as capes and paint their faces and spontaneously break into singing of the anthem. And the atmosphere really seems to have changed uh, with the new security climate. It's not quite as fun-loving and free as it, as it was for a long time. And it's, it sounds like the government's made the announcement that they're going to keep these sorts of security protocols in place. Okay, well, let's go back to the beginning, because it wasn't always a big deal, and we know Canadians are not that nationalistic. So this started with Diefenbaker, right? It does start with Diefenbaker. For Diefenbaker, the decision to do something in Ottawa, it's a pushback against a series of liberal governments chipping away at what he saw as a British-Canadian version of Canadian identity, and especially around symbols and words that seemed explicitly British, including the name of the day, which was, you know, back in the 1950s, it was called Dominion Day. If you were to compare the shows that you see today on Parliament Hill, which is basically trying to get a whole bunch of popular entertainers and dancers, it was a very formal type of celebration. You had the massed bands of the military performing on Parliament Hill, the 21-gun salutes, speeches by the Governor-General, which you still, admittedly, still have to this day. It's not that the military aspects have disappeared entirely. It's just they were very much front and center of what happened in the early Diefenbaker years. But even he started moving away from that as he got into the 1960s. His government really started putting more of a citizenship focus on it, so they would bring in folk dancing troops, largely from Ontario and Quebec, to perform traditional dances of different cultures. There was this sort of message about the different multicultural elements of Canada coming together uh, on Canada Day, and that really gets picked up and run with by subsequent governments after that point. There's a major effort to make sure that you have a mix of representatives of both English-speaking Canada and French Canada, and not just Quebecers. There's always a Franco-Ontarian or an Acadian or someone else from French-speaking Canada performing to try to send this message that bilingualism is part of it, and bilingual hosts. We would probably be very surprised if we looked back and saw the way Indigenous people were participating compared to, say, last year when reconciliation was a big theme. Oh, goodness, yes. There are Indigenous components to what is part of the events in the 1960s, but it's the big group that stands out for me, uh, and I believe it's 1965, that there was a performing troupe from British Columbia, which was called the Caribou Indian Girls Pipe Band. And it literally was uh, a group of girls from a residential school in British Columbia dressed in Scottish tartan and playing the bagpipes. Um, And, like, it's, to me, this emblematic image uh, of the assimilative intent of the residential schools. But there was nothing, certainly in that decade, stressing the idea that Indigenous cultures had value in and of themselves. That actually starts to shift fairly soon after, by the 1970s, the late 1970s performances. They actually set up the television show, so there was actually stages from across the country connected on Canada Day. And that included performances from reserves in Western Canada, from northern Inuit communities. So you actually saw things like throat singing or traditional dancing. You actually had Buffy St. Marie um, perform back in the 1970s, and she performed on Parliament Hill last year. So she's kind of been a staple of the shows. Do you see people having getting more patriotic or less so? or? The interesting thing about Canada Day is you can engage with it in a, in a wide array of different forms. I mean, if you, if you want to go the really 
you know, hardcore nationalist route. You can you know go to Ottawa, go to the big event. You can go to the various events that are put on in, in major cities where you'll have the speeches. Um, but I mean, the the vast majority of Canadians, you know, probably. Uh, engage with Canada Day by you know maybe watching fireworks, uh, maybe having a barbecue at home. Um, you know they, they might put up the flag for the day, but it, it's it's a fairly passive way. And I think that having a certain amount. I mean, one of the things, brought, more broadly speaking, when you study the role of holidays and national days, uh, is having that flexibility of different ways to engage with it is part of what makes those days a little bit more viable. How often is Canada Day used for something immediate and political? The whole way how the federal government organizes the celebrations that it funds and organizes has always been political insofar as who they choose to perform, what messages they include in the speeches, usually has a political goal. Um, the extent to which it would actually be shaped by, by an international event like, like a looming trade war, they have tended not to be quite as explicit along those lines, but the identity politics are usually front and center. There's actually kind of an irony about Canada Day being used to push back against the United States, because back when the decision was made to say, you know, we're going to have the federal government celebrate Canada Day, um, there were people who pushed back within the government and saying, you know, having a big celebration for the National Day isn't something Canadians do, that it was seen as something that was very American and so not to be emulated. Canada Day is a day that you should celebrate your country in the way that feels most appropriate to you, to take a few moments on the day to think about how you can make the country better or improve it moving forward. Well, that sounds like a great suggestion. Happy Canada Day to you. Happy Canada Day to you. That was University of Guelph history professor Matthew Hayday. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, the history of our national anthem. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your International Arts Datebook. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. At the Donmar Warehouse Theatre at Covent Garden, London, the prime of Miss Jean Brodie has been adapted for the stage. It runs through July 28th. In Nice, France, an exhibition called Matisse and Picasso has taken over the Matisse Museum, featuring more than 150 works by the masters. Chinese opera is featured at the West Kowloon Cultural District of Hong Kong. The Chinese Opera Festival is a two-month-long celebration of Asian operatic culture and at the Help Museum in Atlanta, an exhibition called Outliers and American Vanguard Art examines the identity of self-taught artists and their impact on the evolution of modern and contemporary art. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. 38 years ago, on July 1st, 1980, O Canada was officially declared Canada's national anthem. That was over a hundred years after the earliest version of the song was written. It was originally commissioned by the Lieutenant Governor of Quebec, Theodore Robitaille, for the 1880 Saint-Jean-Baptiste ceremony. The famous French-Canadian composer Calixa Lavallée wrote the music, which was set to a French poem by Quebec judge Sir Adolphe Basile Routier. 
However, the song didn't become known in English Canada until years later, when in 1901, it was sung to the Duke and Duchess of Cornwall, later King George V and Queen Mary, during a tour to Canada. In 1908, Collier's Weekly magazine held a competition to write new English lyrics for the song, and Robert Stanley Weir had the winning entry. This version was published and became a popular song, but still not an official anthem. In 1939, it became the de facto national anthem when King George VI remained at attention during its playing at the dedication of the National War Memorial in Ottawa. For the next 40 years, it joined God Save the Queen as an anthem played and sung at many public and formal events. Finally, in 1980, the National Anthem Act formally made O Canada the official Canadian national anthem. 2018 is another year that will forever be associated with our national anthem. At the start of the year, the Senate passed a bill to make the lyrics gender neutral, replacing In All Thy Sons Command with In All of Us Command. Right now, we'll hear a rousing instrumental version as played by the Hannaford Street Silver Band. You can sit down now. That was the Hannaford Street Silver Band with O Canada. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Happy Canada Day. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.